Hello there, and here we are after a short break discussing again the year's elections on the Science Slot Machine. Yeah, we have still our guest Hugh here, and we got some exciting news just now. What is that, Harry? The news is that uh, according uh, to a couple sites, uh, Biden has now taken Pennsylvania, sitting him at 273 votes. I will say, according to the AP and, yeah, therefore Apple News as well, he's sitting at 284 with Arizona counting as well. So some good news here um, for Biden, at least, that uh, he has pulled ahead. Hugh, what are your immediate thoughts on this issue? My gut reaction is I'm still not ready to believe yet. My heart has not caught up to CNN. That's okay. Same here. I I think a celebration at this point is premature. I am drinking a glass of red wine, but that's mostly for stress relief and not for celebration. So I'll save the champagne. One of the ironies is that the vote always takes this long to count. It just yeah. usually doesn't matter. Because I am a little bit more obsessed with this than I should be, one of the things that I experienced this election through was through polling, through forecast, through statistical modeling, and then watching all of the assumptions and promises of those metrics dissolve in front of my eyes. One thing, though, that strikes me is uh, the term uncertainty. Like this election process uh, in included a lot of uncertainties, like from here to there, everywhere was uncertainty. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Everyone just said, yeah, count the votes. We have to be patient. We have to be patient. Just count the votes. So is that uh, a spin or can we... In, in what terms can we think of that, the term uncertainty? Well, Costa, that's a very, very nice transaction from briefly talking about US elections to actually switching to an STS mode. Uncertainties are quite a topic in our field. And is there anything more uncertain on this planet than those elections right now? <laughs> Does God exist? Yes, there are uh, more <laughs> <laughs> uncertain issues at stake, but... In terms of what's going on now and what everybody seems to be looking at, I think when you look at it, it's not just that the whole thing is uncertain. It's that uncertainties are put into it by certain actors. And therefore, on the flip side of uncertainties, certainties are also a part of that. You have uh, a sit the sitting president casting doubt with his certainty of the uncertainty of the voting uh, practice and, and, and the ballots. And it appears to be that the only people that seem to be very certain are some news outlets. Uh, CNN is a notable uh, example here. They are always certain, though. Uh, Hugh, what do you think? Maybe you can pull us back into reality here a little bit. How should we be looking at uncertainty? I think we should accelerate as far into uncertainty as we can. <laughs> Just give up on the concept of objective reality completely because no one else seems to be respecting it. Anyway, the concept of a shared search for truth seems to have been cast aside in this most recent election. I do think, though, that certainty and uncertainty can also be, if not quite weaponized, deployed in different ways, because certainty in a democratic process can also be, in some sense, a threat. Like, oh, don't worry about it. The system will take care of it. I think what, what you're pointing to is kind of where I wanted to go is that Certainty and uncertainty don't exist on their own. They have to be mobilized in a certain way. 
and they're mobilized quite differently. Can you think of maybe to push you in a direction, Hugh, some examples in this election cycle and even in the last day or two of where certainty and uncertainty was mobilized? God, being the historian, I want to jump back a little bit to what is the STS term? It's like a discussion closure mechanism or the way in which certainty is resolved. Yeah. Like with Georgia, it seemed certain and certain and certain until a sudden point when it wasn't anymore. And now we've reached the flip side again, where Georgia seems to be, quote, certain based on complicated polling data, mathematical projections, historical projections of voting behavior in certain districts, knowing that particular counties typically vote Democrat and other counties typically vote Republican. So the the closure mechanism doesn't come with the official certification of the results by the Secretary of State of Georgia. It comes when a complicated network of analysts, pollsters, journalists, network anchors collectively and in a somewhat opaque way decide, well, there are no more votes that Donald Trump could win. Therefore, we need to give it to Biden. Or on the flip side with North Carolina, where our complicated projections show that there are no more votes or there's a very small chance that there are votes that are left will be enough to turn it from Trump to Biden. And so certainty and uncertainty, it's not like there's one or the other. It's complicated socio-technical processes that create certainty and uncertainty. Actually, I did a bit of research as I realized I've never actually stumbled upon papers from the STS that are reflecting in some way on presidential elections or voting as a whole, which is unusual considering the fact that STS literally represents the three main aspects of politics, science, technology, and society. However, I found two SCS papers and both of them are focusing relatively on the same issue. And it is not certainties and uncertainties. But they're paying attention more on the challenges associated with voting and election technology and the broad impact this technology has on understanding and participating in politics, where the media coverage also plays a huge role. Media impacts and shapes how the general public looks at the different parties and representatives. How neutral the intentions of the media are is another question. Yeah, I think technology is always uh, supposed to be an S have an STS angle. And I think we can think of the US presidential elections in multiple ways when in terms of technologies use and technologies being in action. So for instance, you mentioned social media. Social media has been a huge issue in this election process. Um, Donald Trump tweeting several times a day. This is his main way of communicating to the public's so social media is one thing. Another thing, of course, we already talked about in the previous uh, episode is polling. So this is also a type of technology, as Hugh mentioned, a system which is in action. And uh, so we can ask here who gets polled and how important is polling in the U.S.? This is actually a question for I have for our U.S. experts. <laughs> Should the polling be a little de-emphasized in the U.S.? Because I have the feeling that it is so important and people would actually say, okay, because the polls say this and that, this and this person is going to be the uh, president. And I think for the last two elections, this had not been <laughs> quite successful. What do you guys think? 
I don't know. There's a long history of polling mis- mishaps in America. If Have you ever seen the famous headline, Dewey defeats Truman in a history textbook anywhere? Yes. No. no. So there, it's a famous historical example of po- a polling mistake. It was 1948. It was uh, Truman the Democrat versus Dewey the Republican. Famously, all of the polls showed an overwhelming victory by the Republican candidate, like overwhelming, so confident that they printed the headlines, the victory headlines for Dewey the night before and had them all ready to go only for the results to turn out in a, uh, not a landslide, but a solid victory for Truman. And that came down to pollsters overwhelmingly calling people with a phone, which skewed into a certain socioeconomic demographic that those people voted overwhelmingly for the Republican, but the majority of the electorate voted for Democrat. Um, and I'm wondering if there's some similar influences occurring right now, some similar problems. Once again, we're relying on polls to tell us what people think about polls, but there appears to be some both statistical and anecdotal evidence that a significant portion of the, of the electorate is not willing to talk to pollsters or is willing to outright lie to pollsters or is not comfortable telling a stranger on a phone what they think. But you also have with the rise of cell phones, we ourselves were discussing this earlier, how lots of us won't answer if it's an unknown call or we're not interested in taking a political poll on our cell phone as we're out walking around. It's a particular type of person who's willing to sit down and engage with a pollster. And, and therefore, these polls, I, I think it's a, it's a pipe dream to think that they're somehow reflective of the whole US population. And again and again, I think a lot of it comes down to it's not necessarily the mistake with the polls. There's always problems with the polls. They have their own problems, but it's embedded into a 24-hour news cycle that has to talk about something, right? And this election, it seems, is when Trump won the election, one of the main topics then therefore automatically becomes in the 24-hour news cycle is the next election. It's a big topic in the media, and there's a lot of money involved. And this thing about running headlines, it's all over the place. There's only so much space on a newspaper and there's only so much space for a newspaper stand to have newspapers. So you could only throw out so much information, right? Nowadays, there's no limit to the amount of space and the amount of information you can throw at the public. They can be reading totally different information from totally different sources. And it's easier than ever these days with social media. I actually also want to push... well suggest another aspect to this and that the the idea of the media pushing this in one way makes it sound like it's a one-sided engagement. I personally like turned to polling and news a lot for reassurance during what I felt was a very difficult, frustrating and abnormal time. I wanted to know what my fellow citizens thought about things that were going on. What did my fellow citizens, not individual people, not anecdotes, but what did the country collectively think about the Black Lives Matter protests? What did they collectively think about the most recent Trump administration decision? What did they think about the most recent Supreme Court decision? Um, and polling is a way of gaining and presenting arguably more objective data about what the collective country is experiencing, thinking, and believing. <laughs> I think, I think, I think so. What I have seen in the last couple of days, I watched a lot of CNN actually. So I, 
I watched all this news coverage, a lot of commercials also. So there's a big <laughs> commercial industry also involved. And I found it interesting. There was this term key race alert. So every time something happened, there's a key race alert. And even if it's only 10, 10 votes coming in, which are presented, they make a big thing out of it. And it's just not comparable to what it is in Europe. Because in Europe, it's not that big. Not everything's I, a big story. Exactly. Right? I have the feeling it's not that big an issue. Of course, elections also are important in Europe. I don't want to say that. It's not, it's not like the media is going wild because of that. Would you say that in Europe, it's more so that the election comes, the election happens, and then the election goes, and the government gets to form? Whereas in the US, it, it holds more of a consistent place in the media. Is in when you're watching CNN, it doesn't so much seem as if there's stories. It just seems as if there's updates, almost as if you're pulling your thumb down on Twitter and seeing the new stuff come in. Yeah, actually, that's a good uh, description of what is happening there because they are 24-7 coverage of the, of the processes at, at stake and of the processes in place and i don't think there's ever a break have i have not seen a break where another thing was happening or where there were news about i don't know there did some other stuff happen in that time as well like but robbie what do you think actually i find it extremely interesting what you're mentioning right now because currently what i'm thinking is when everything is visible and supposedly covered 24 7 and people see it really all the time Does that motivate somehow the political campaigns and the political competitors and the whole teams and elections to reduce errors in the whole process and to reduce fuck-ups? Or is it exactly the opposite? Is it actually easier to manipulate people by convincing them that you're being transparent all the time? That's a really interesting point. And I had thought about that. And if you take back my example or like the Dewey-Truman race and This uh, thought that somehow the public has this look into a transparent election cycle and they can get an instant update of all the votes is really, really new, right? And it's also not like that in other countries. Some There is a, a on the news a vote and you can see the votes coming in, but it's not as instantaneous. And as we can see now, it's more respected that the votes will be counted and there will be a winner and a loser. The thing is, there's not such a heightened sense to me, at least as an American looking here, that it has to be transparent and we need to know that it's transparent because there's something called trust. If you have an infrastructure and a system that you trust, the hunt to find transparency doesn't seem as as much of a mission. Whereas in the US, you have this media and a map that doesn't disappear with a red state and a blue state. And as Hugh talked about earlier, the closure of uncertainty in, in Georgia turns into a opening up of certainty and a bold declaration of certainty as the numbers go up. And it's this kind of, although it's very, very complex and there's many actors at play in these networks, it happened very quick. This switch happened very quick. Whereas not so long ago, These developments took a while for the public to find out if they ever found out about them. Their results weren't instantaneous and you couldn't look in to see these results presented by the media. You had to more or less trust and accept what was going on because you didn't have access into seeing instantaneous things. You only could maybe perhaps listen to it on the radio. Well, and I would argue, but there were different mechanisms in place, rightly or wrongly. Like you still have, I mean, you still have remnants of them. For instance, 
it's something we haven't even talked about and like is relative it's not widely known but for instance there are a whole bunch of steps that will happen between now and january that happen almost in the background each secretary of state will like the counties will certify their votes send their vote totals to the secretary of state usually or the designated official in each state who will certify them then the electors will be chosen the electors will meet in a actually i i was looking into it today it's a relatively legalistic and there's a series of steps affirmations and documents they have to sign and document then those are sent to the congress and the congress itself votes to accept or reject each vote total from each state all of that happens between now and january sorry harry you want to jump in i do uh back to my point i just want to say you say it happens in the background it usually does happen in the background but with that 24-hour news cycle and cnn fox news do you think that's going to happen in the background this time around? Uh, it depends. I feel like if America feels like this this system is unfair, if collectively there are real questions about this, or perhaps if there's a surprise during the Electoral College vote this year, then it might enter into the background. But I'll remember 2016 was also a very, very hotly felt election. And there was some some thought around who will electorals vote for, but it didn't enter the news cycle in the way that it did the actual election did. I know they televised the ceremony where the president is formally uh, elected by the Congress, but I didn't watch it and I care way too much about politics. But what I'm saying is that was an election where Hillary Clinton lost the election, gave a concession speech, and I don't see Donald Trump giving a concession speech. and. I don't see him losing any way close to gracefully. So I struggle to see that all these processes are going to happen in the background, but I they have to happen nonetheless. Yeah. Ooh. And I think that's a good point. We are in reasonably unprecedented territory. I think I want to jump back to the point we were talking about before we <laughs> got delightfully distracted in that like today – the idea is that we need transparency. Every individual, we can tie this to witnessing who in the sense of um, early scientific achievement, who is a credible witness? Who do we trust to witness a scientific experiment? Who do we trust to report to the Republic what they saw, heard, and experienced inside a laboratory? And I think you can make some analogies to who do you trust to oversee the counting process? Who do you trust? Which delegates do you think are going to fairly report on what they see or fairly report any problems or irregularities? Or do you yourself need to be watching on the webcam that a lot of these counties have set up to count the ballot procedures? Also, how are you, an uninformed layperson, supposed to know what is an irregularity and what isn't? What there, for instance, there's already an election worker had already had to go into hiding in Georgia because someone saw a video of him throwing away a piece of paper and they falsely assumed that he was discarding a ballot and started an entire online just this moment of rage that sparked threats against this man's life. So he's literally hiding after descriptions of him, his house, and his car circulated on online with the accusations that he was throwing away ballots well well i think i think uh, robbie also mentioned this at the very beginning of our previous episode the role of the u.s in the world and the role of the u.s in in in, in terms of their relation to china for instance i think you mentioned that right robbie 
Yes, uh, and I think a great example for that is currently, regardless of who wins the elections, the U.S. is going to leave the Paris climate deal at midnight anyways. So this probably is not the best example of how those particular elections uh, impact the rest of the world, but is certainly a nice way to show how U.S. politics have consequences globally. I think I think actually they do because I think Joe Biden declared that he will re-enter day one. Yeah, he will re-enter this Paris climate uh, contract, and I think Donald Trump won't. <laughs> well, he's he's already left it. Yeah. It's a great example because day one of Donald Trump presidency is to leave the Paris Agreement. Day one of Biden presidency is to enter back into the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, There are numerous issues to go about, about what this climate agreement actually means and all its faults and everything. I think the symbolic value is something that needs to be looked at here. What it meant to leave it and what it means to at least enter it back in, it is symbolic of coming back into a dialogue with the rest of the world, that the world needs to work together. You know, I am a firm believer. I I love my country. Um, it doesn't mean that I always think my country does the right thing, though. And You can have a uh, care for America. You could probably even have America first, but you cannot have America first without looking at the rest of the world because guess what? The rest of the world exists and you need to work together right now. Um, and that's what this agreement is symbolic of. And rather than tearing up these agreements, you need to be revising these agreements to make it more beneficial for every country and moreover, more beneficial for this planet we find ourselves on. Well, yes, and this is what I meant earlier when I asked Hugh what he understands under politics, because it appears to me that not only the states, but every country out there is mainly focused on covering particular issues and topics that serve their own political interests, rather than doing something for the greater good, which in my opinion has somehow been left behind on the second place. Well, I think you have made a nice spin here because we can think of that um, in terms of uh, making future also, um, like which futures are envisioned um, by the different potential presidents, which we now know is possibly Joe Biden, but which future also in, in terms of their relations to other countries, in terms of their relation to the world, to nature is envisioned. So I think this is an interesting point we can maybe discuss. I think it does complicate, as Ravi said, this idea of what politics is, you know? It is obviously, I gave this definition of politics is who gets what, when, and where. And this is a very old definition that I remember directly from Political Science 101 that you have to take at a state school in California. And I'll never forget this definition because I asked, well, what does the earth get? That's not a who right? It's a, a, conventionally not a who. So this question assumes that politics is only in the interest of people making decisions about what they have. And it also implies ownership about something. There's so many implications by this very conventional idea about politics. And I think now, you, you know, with thinking about futures, we could really expand this definition. And it shows that uh, even if you have a conventional definition about what politics is, it's not a stable thing. And it's open to interpretation and uh, redef redefinition. And I think that's before us now. <laughs> Are there any other thoughts of future making maybe 
like uh like let's make an experiment here what what would be the what would the future look like if uh, president donald trump would be gifted another four years what do you think like how how would that impact the world i mean we, of course we can talk a lot about this is not actually real but i'm just thinking of different types of futures for the us and beyond i don't know how much of like i i seem to contradict myself a lot i don't know how much of a difference it makes in the world at the moment i think it makes quite a lot of difference but for people for states it makes a lot of difference but for the planet i don't know it depends who you're asking this question for you ask how much does it impact the world for the people and the places and the nations and the politics uh, the political parties at play a lot for some things the planet uh, the animals the other actors that we don't think about i don't know so much well i also I have a hard time predicting what a Biden presidency will look like because I, f I think he's been deliberately vague. He's not wanted to say or do anything too divisive that could turn off any group of voters, as we were talking about, any people from any specific state or region. He wants to be anti-Donald Trump enough, but not specifically for anything. He's for police reform, but not defunding the police. He's for climate, like combating climate change but not the green new deal like and there's a lot of space for future making between those two positions the other thing it's hard to put this in any quantifiable number but for better or worse there's an imagination that america has has a perhaps unearned preeminence in the world as the oldest democracy as a fighter for human rights for liberty and for justice I'm not entirely convinced that that is always or even mostly the case, but that is an imaginary of who and what the U.S. is and who and what the U.S. does when it engages with the world. And I think Donald Trump is seen as a horrifying aberration um, from what are widely considered by both Republicans and Democrats to be core American values. And to see those values reflected back at us from the president's and reflected outward to partners and other governments in the world, I think has had a lot of damage. Well, we'll see. I can't quantify it. But a lot of people seem convinced that Donald Trump has done enormous damage to America's standing in the world. Sorry, can I jump in? First, I want to relate to what you said um, in relation to if people consider him doing more harm than good to economics, to environment, to society. I think sometimes people really confuse whether they personally like someone with what kind of politics this someone is applying onto the country. And something else that I think Harry mentioned earlier on, or in general, something related uh, to future making, two words, public participation. There are multiple diverse semi-political organizations where people can gather and discuss their visions of the future, of what kind of politics they would like to push further into the country, and so on. I recently spoke to a friend of mine, and she just got offered to participate in a similar political organization created entirely by citizens, and she asked herself, how do I know if those are the right people for me? So her boyfriend asked her a very simple question. What country is the perfect country for you? And if the beliefs and actions of those people in this organization somehow overlap with your ideas, then you're probably at the right place. 
But how many people who are complaining of the politics of be it Trump or someone else have a clear idea and vision of what kind of country they want to live in? And do they actually have something to suggest as a solution to the stuff they're complaining about? There's a there's a, a lot to respond to that, but I I can't because I don't my gut feeling is that people don't. I mean, uh, critiquing is a lot better than is a lot easier than proposing, you know, and it's a lot easier once you make a proposal to give tenable things to make that proposal come to life. It's very very difficult. Um, I think now Q kind of got on it as well. I think now that Biden is a little bit more comfortably in in the lead. What I've noticed amongst us is we're a little bit. Uh, we feel more relaxed to provide some criticism on on Biden or critique. I what I've been really seeing is a romanticization of of the man. You know, myself included. I have to be honest. The standard that we're weighing him against has gotten so low. And going going back to what you said, anti-Americanism has existed for a long time and for many good reasons. Right, the image that people have in their 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 heads about America having a giant place in the world. Yes, that's unified. I think a lot. America does have a giant place in the world and has seemed to have a lot of power, particularly in the last hundred years. But it is very divided for if that has been used for good or bad. And I think the general sentiment building up for a long time now has been that it has been more so bad. And that has predated Trump, right? So to think that we're going to have Biden now and it's going to go back to normal, back to normal is not necessarily such a great thing in this case. You know, and it seems as a little bit when you say that, that America, not to bring a Trump again, but is it making America at least good again, right? Like you're almost instilling the value that America was something okay or that it needs to get better. It's just very interesting to see to see non-Americans kind of fill that out for me because I could never have, have done that. And I think it's really, really interesting, Robbie, like really but to answer your question, no, I, I, I think people struggle to provide critique. Like you can ask many Trump voters, what should happen? <laughs> That's a, 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 a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. I would just say it. Don't ask the average public what they would do. Because to, if you ask mo a lot of Trump supporters what they would want done, you, you will find out that there's a lot of people that would have done things that are far, far worse than Trump ever imagined. And this is exactly why you kind of expect experts and informed people, intelligent people to be the ones ruling a country, a region or whatever. But something else, this be it America or something else, make it good and great again, as people who have background in history should obviously see how everything is referring to the past. And people don't even consider that the future can be greater than that past. So you want to make it great again, referring to everything it used to be. And I think for many people, this is their comfort zone to simply let's go back to the times we're familiar with, uh, where we, when we knew how things work, rather than pushing innovation and risking it by giving the chance to new ideas. And this, in my opinion, is strongly connected to the fact that most of the people who run for president are 
let's say, not in their 30s. <laughs> and on one side, you're like, yes, they already have the necessary life experience to make better choices. But maybe they're just not visionaries for other things that could improve and the ways this could be done. Yeah, I think in your, I think you're making a really good point here because uh, you nicely put it there. Not really in their thirties. <laughs> that was, uh, I like that joke. Some of them exactly, are in their 70s. Exactly. So they are both old white men. You must tell that it's not like Donald Trump is is an old white man and Joe Biden is a young POC from I don't know some suburb. Uh, he's also an, an old white man. Right, who has a, a history of doing the wrong thing when it comes to the interest of people of color in the U.S. America is not, was not set up as a popular democracy. Um, it was a democracy, arguably far more democratic than almost any country at that time. But it was still premised on the idea of elite control and rule of the electorals and political system. Um, and so you had voters choose electors, wise, seasoned men, white men, capable of overruling their passions and acting dispassionately for the benefit of the republic. Um, The idea, ironically, was exactly to prevent a candidate like Donald Trump from being elected, because you would pick sensible men who would choose carefully rather than be governed by their wild passions. But again, on that level, I think it's very interesting to see that a lot of the Biden campaign and messaging has been mixed. It has been both a let's push forward progressive mix And it's been a let's go back to sanity. Let's go back to a better time, a pre-Trump time. So there's like the continuance of that let's go back sentiment, but there's also the sentiment of a progressive pushing forward. And I think that hits a lot on what Hugh said is there, there's been a great tendency of, uh, of the Biden camp and the Biden campaign to not make bold statements, to be very vague what is going to happen, you know? Who knows how this presidency is going to go? There's a lot of potential what to do, but he's also got to keep in mind that there's congressional races going on and you can't get anything passed if, you, if, if the Republicans control every other check, right? So you have no idea how this presidency is going to go. It could just be marred in attempted thing, attempted thing, block, 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 or it could be marred in just complete neutrality where he does nothing because he's just appeasing every concern. And the tone of the campaign that thus far, it's very, it's, it's very, it's much easier to have a campaign when you have Trump to go against because you can spend your whole campaign speech about how bad Trump is and about negating, let's go back, let's do this. Oh my God, did you see him do this? It's crazy. Vote for Biden. But it's much harder to have a mobilized thing where you make proposals about what you want to do and how you're going to do it and what it's going to affect, right? And for better or for worse, for a lot of worse, Trump was made a lot of declarations, Right. He was anti and declaratory, like he was making sentiments about what he's going to do. And then during his campaign, scarily, he tried to do almost everything he said he did. There was no hiding from that. So I'm very cautious about getting swept up in this romanticism about what the next four years could be about a Biden Trump, about a Biden ticket and about a Biden victory. Like I said before, 
my politics don't really uh, align with his. And the reason I've been swept up by the romanticism is that pragmatist element in me. I don't know. Hugh, you want to jump in? Yeah, I also want to point a little bit to what Trump is offering his voters, because I think that's also very important. Um, One, it's a romanticized notion of the past and who the past was and who mattered in the past, I think. But he's also doing very good on picking up on specific grievances that his voters have. Some of their grievances I agree with. The economy is stacked against poor and rural Americans. It is very stacked and has been stacked for a long time. It's also heavily stacked against working people. It's stacked against low and lower middle class people. Um, And those grievances don't come out of nowhere. But there are also grievances he's pointing to around race. Um, He is happy to scapegoat Americans who are not white wherever they are for the problems that beset America. And I think he is consciously, there's a reason he's saying make America great again and pitching uh, 1950s or 1960s. It's not an atmosphere, but just the way he talks and the visions of America he conjures. For instance, telling suburban women, don't worry, I will stop the projects and I'll get your husbands back to work. Housewives should vote for me is completely antiquated and utterly out of step with anything in the last 50 years. But it does apparently also appeal to a certain group of voters who liked that time. I have one one little more point we could possibly discuss, and this is is actually in the name of our discipline, because we are not studying only society or technology, but also science, right? So I want to talk a little a little bit at least about the role of science in this uh, elections. What do you guys think? Science, my friends, is all over the place, and even if it's not exactly in the form we would like to see it in particular. It is there, in the smallest, in the tiniest details that appear so insignificant when you first look at them. Everything has science behind it. What kind of colors, what kind of costumes, what kind of speech, how to present it, how to behave, what kind of gestures to make and what kind of gestures to avoid. Everything. How to present particular things so the public understands it, how to manipulate them. Oops, I didn't mean manipulate. But everything, science is really everywhere. Maybe I can connect these two points and give one big example and do also do some more future casting as dangerous that is in the name of science. Uh, Robbie got before about trusting experts and about listening to experts and uh, about how important that can be. Hugh, the one positive I do see maybe coming here and it might negate all of your points earlier or not negate, but maybe nuance about states' rights. What do you think a Biden presidency could mean for our COVID response where we're seeing 100,000 cases a day, which might go up to 200,000 cases a day? We're now at 240,000 plus deaths in the US. What can a Biden presidency do on day one and use science and use the scientific experts at his disposal to do better? I think the biggest challenge, especially as cases rise and numbers rise, is there are already, again, reportages of shortages of protective equipment, shortages of medical supplies, shortages of key um, medicines, I think, also that are needed to treat COVID. And so almost certainly the first thing he can do is set up a much better organized centralized system to make sure 
areas that need equipment and medicine and, and PPE are getting them. I think the other thing he needs to do is do whatever, not whatever's necessary, but like Operation Warp Speed, this vaccine program. Make sure both that it is proceeding as quickly as possible, as accurately as possible, without sacrificing quality, but also make sure that there are guarantees that everyone can get access to it, that it won't be locked behind a paywall, that, you know, on the one hand, definitely some groups are going to need access to it first, like first responders, people who are particularly vulnerable, communities that maybe need access to it before others. But the idea that this should not turn into another profit-making mechanism for a company. This needs to be widely and quickly available to as many people as possible. Also, he can, uh, I hate to say this, but he can just listen to the experts and model good behavior. Correct. That's I, I, that's what I was hoping to hear. I was hoping to hear that, you know, there are different types of expertise. There are experts, so-called experts, that make polls. They conduct political polls. They can be wrong and they have been wrong. There are medical experts that at one day can tell you, you don't need to wear a mask, there's nothing to worry about, and they can be wrong. There's a difference between experts being wrong and and experts having valuable advice that you need to listen to. And I think that's something that we need to understand is experts are not always right, but there is immense value in listening to what they have to say because it's not in their interest to tell you the wrong thing. It's just not. It can be in their interest to publish an article that has information that was rushed, but there is a consensus. And I think it's a complicated process. And maybe Joe Biden can set an example for the value of expertise in listening to such scientific advice. My one concern, though, is the people, the people who I feel like are resisting scientific advice thus far are not the kind of people who are going to listen to Joe Biden. They are not the kind of people who are going to view him as a legitimate, safe source of knowledge. And ironically, honestly, I think Republican, major Republicans need to step it up because they are the ones whose who's voters or who their voters will listen to. Thank you, Hugh, for the input. And maybe just to wrap it up, I would like to second something that Harry mentioned. Indeed, that experts also have controversial opinions on topics. And we should really pay our respects to all the scientists out there who really are willing to do something for the greater good and who are just not serving someone's interests. So shout out to all the people out there who really want to make a change. And guys, don't forget to vote because your voice matters. And shout out to all the first responders who are doctors, nurses, medical professionals who are putting their lives on the line to save people in a very difficult moment. Thank you, folks. Stay safe. Thanks, Hugh. I double up on that. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if I had a lot of fun during this podcast. I Well, I did have some fun, I have to say, but it was really good for me to talk about this with you guys. And I was really honored to have this discussion. And I don't know, we got a couple things on the science slot machine agenda uh, to get far through as far as episodes, but maybe in the future, this could be a lot long process. Maybe we come back to revisit this and maybe we don't. We'll see. Now it's time to send us your topics. Pick whatever comes to your mind. We will deal with it, even if it's obscure or very niche. Challenge us. Simply send us an email at science slot machine at gmail.com. 
Again, it's scienceslotmachine at gmail.com. No spaces. We look forward to hearing from you.